I actually, as I was listening to the scriptures read in Hebrews this morning, I thought, I don't have to preach after that. It was so clear and so uh, Christ-exalting, just the scripture itself. So you've already heard the word of God this morning. I'll try to give it to you again this time. Uh, keep your Bibles open, of course, to the book of Hebrews and that nexus between 11 and 12, because that's where we're going to land this morning and, and talk about. Uh, during my student years, when I was working a swing shift in a factory in Los Angeles, I became friends with a law student who played tennis. His name was Larry King, not to be confused with the CNN talk show host, Larry King. Larry and I talked a lot of tennis during our breaks. So swing shift in Los Angeles, we'd see each other and we'd talk tennis. And soon we began to exchange a little um, back and forth talk, tennis trash talk, I suppose, which eventuated in, we'll find out who's the best uh, tennis game on a Saturday morning at the on the courts of L.A. State. And the game was very, pretty casual, hitting the ball back and forth until his wife showed up. His wife was the then and quite famous Billie Jean King, Wimbledon champion at that time. Well, I can tell you that as we began to play farther, our shots got a little crisper. Uh, we sweat a little more. We left it out there all the time trying to be male and casual. The point is, is that her presence at that match really did elevate our game. I played as good as I could play, and I won't say who won that day. I want to say golfers, think what would happen if you were out on the golf course and Phil Mickelson showed up. Uh, how, how would your game be? Well, maybe a dissolve with him standing there watching the whole thing. Or, guys, can you imagine um, shooting some hoops and Steph Curry appears saying, mind if I join you? Every ounce of your wannabe in your mortal body would suddenly be on the court. Because the presence of pros, Hall of Famers, is immensely elevating. And on a transcending level, and I mean on a cosmic level, the truth also applies. In fact, the author of Hebrews draws an awesome picture of heavenly observers in an attempt to motivate and instruct a faltering church. The Church of Hebrews is between two persecutions, the Claudian persecution, which took place in the 50s, A.D. 50s, and the coming Neronian persecution. I mean, it was in deep water and trouble was coming. And so in an attempt to motivate and instruct a faltering church to persevere, he gives us an example. And the scene that he presents is like a great coliseum. And the occasion is a foot race. And the contestants include the author himself, the people, the Jews in the Roman church, and by virtue of mutual faith, us. And the cloud of witnesses 
that's mentioned in verse 1 that fills the stadium is made up of the great spiritual athletes of the past who by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, followed the Lord. And so that's the point of this great text is how do we by faith run the race that is set before us? Now, they're not live, uh, live uh, witnesses of the event, but witnesses by the fact of their monumental testimony, their persevering faith, like Abel, who it says in verse 4, chapter 11, who though is dead still speaks. This is Abel, the son of Adam, speaking all the way from the grave. So everywhere you look in this vast arena are well-wishers. So if I was to imagine what they might look like, you'd have Abraham who stroked his beard and smiled, looked on. Maybe his, Sarah, his wife Sarah giving a regal wave of the hand. Moses sitting back to see what is going to happen. And the race is about to start and your heart is pumping rapidly and you're afraid. But with all your being, you want to do well. But how? Well, the opening three verses of Hebrews tell us how to run by faith the race. And if you follow the logic that you have there, you've got first divest, put an exclamation point after it, run, exclamation point, focus, exclamation point, and consider, exclamation point. Now, the call to investment is clearly spelled out in the opening line of Hebrews 12, where you read, if you're looking at it with me, that opening line, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely. So what he's calling for is a divestment that demands a radical stripping of casting things away, just like an ancient runner in the Greek Olympics would run barely naked to not have any impediment. And the writer talks about divesting ourselves of all hindrances and sin. Now, the sin that's described in this verse is described as a sin which clings so closely. That is, uh, sins that uh, are adhesive, that are hard to cast off, that it takes great trouble at times to get rid of. Uh, other translations talk about besetting sins. That might be the way to think about it, uh, a sin that... Uh, is a sin that for you clings closely. And uh, they're all different. Some sins have no trouble uh, wiggling into our eyes and ears and touch and taste simply because of who we are. But sins that would cling to us don't cling to other people. So we're talking about a very individual thing about sins that cling so closely. 
uh, sensuality may be an Achilles heel to many men, but not all. Other men have no problem with that, might be set by jealousy. I was talking to uh, Carrie about these sins, and uh, we decided that one sin that is a besetting sin is a sin of bitterness. And Carrie was talking about that, and he was talking about how bitterness is culturally cachet today to kind of have a bitter spirit, be bitter about politics, be bitter about your state and life, be bitter about where the world's going, and that it can be expressed, say, in kind of an urbane way of being cynical and bitter. But bitterness is deadly. And if you look at our text in Romans, a little later in that chapter, in verse 15, it refers to it. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain, obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Very interesting that bitterness is a sin that uh, affects others. It's like an infection. Uh, these, these adhesive sins, maybe another one that's common or that you know yourself personally is jealousy, an ache you feel in your soul when someone does well when you don't. Or pessimism, a despairing negativism that sours everything and brings gloom to life. That's a sin, a besetting sin. Adhesive, a pride that makes your self-absorbed self the center of all things, or anger that belches fire, words, deeds, actions. Maybe your besetting sin is lying, uh, shading the truth, not being able to be really forthright, and, and it affects everything. All kinds of things. If you're going to take one that would be kind of a banner over besetting sins, it would be lust. Lust for others. Lust for things. Lust for positions. Because lust like this suggests that there's going to be pleasure if you get what you lust for. The material things, that person, that position. Uh, all you have to do is look at nature and you see that there is an analogy from nature that's been uh, repeated billions and trillions of times that makes the point. A fly lights on the leaf of a plant and as it does, three fingers come out, crimson fingers, and pin the fly down. And the fly struggles. The more he struggles, the more he's... he's immersed in the adhesive of those fingers. Maybe in his fly's mind, he says, this isn't so bad because he eats the swill of the sweetness of the flower, but when he's completely taken in, that closes up in a fist. And two hours later, the fist opens, and all there is is an empty shell. This is how lust can be. 
of besetting sin. Well, the scriptural command calls for extreme actions. And if we're in the... And if we're to finish well in faith, we have to strip our souls naked of every weight and the sin that clings so closely. The eternal fact is we'll never run the race that we ought to run without a commitment to divestment. It's radical talk casting off these things if we are to run the race that is set before us. Well, if you've then pro- properly divested yourself of every hindrance is cast aside, there remains one great thing to do, and that's to run. And you see it in the second half of verse 1. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, uh, persevering endurance is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to see. Uh, There was an article written some years ago in the Philadelphia Inquirer by a man by the name of Art Carey who wrote columns for the Inquirer and he talked about running the Boston Marathon and hitting the wall and going on to finish and this is what, this is how he described it. He says, now the rigors of having run nearly 20 miles are beginning to tell. My stride is shortened. My legs are tight. My breathing is shallow and fast. My joints are becoming raw and worn. My neck aches from all the jolts that have ricocheted up my spine. Half-dollar-sized blisters sting the soles of my feet. I'm beginning to feel queasy and lightheaded. I want to stop running. I have hit the wall. I don't think I'd ever want to be a marathoner. What a miserable thing. Then he says, now the battle begins. Up the first of many long inclines, I start to climb. Heartbreak Hill, the last, the longest, the steepest, a half-mile struggle against gravity designed to finish off the faint and faltering. The last four miles are seemingly endless. Finally, the distinctive profile of Prudential Building looms on the horizon. I begin to step up my pace. I can see the yellow stripe 50 yards ahead. I run faster, pumping my arms, pushing off my toes, defying clutching leg cramps to mount a glorious last gasp kick, cheers and clapping, 10 yards, finish line, an explosion of euphoria. I'm clocked at two hours and 50 minutes and 49 seconds. And then he adds the reality. My place in the race is 1,176. Well, he says to himself, I find the figures difficult to believe, but if they're accurate, then I have run the best marathon of my life, even though I'm in thousand place. While times and places are important, he says, Breaking a personal record is thrilling, especially as you grow older. The real joy of the Boston Marathon is just finishing, doing what you've set out to do. So, persevering grit has a terrible beauty, but it is eternally beautiful when devoted to real life spiritual race 
that is marked out by this, this, this biblical sense of perseverance, patient fortitude, patiently gutting it out. Now, as you step back from this passage, and he's calling his hearers to run the race, you realize they all have different races to run. We have a specific race mapped out for us. The course for each one of us is unique. And its uniqueness is determined by God who charts it while factoring in who you are, who I am, our giftedness, our background, our responsibilities, our age, our health, but most of all, who we are in Christ. So the point is, is that my race and your race is like no one else's. It's marked out for you, whoever you are today, as a student, maybe a single, a parent, a grandparent, someone like myself on the verge of being 80. I've got my race marked out. It's not like yours. And some races are relatively straight. Some are all turns. Some seem all uphill. Some are flat like a hiking path. They're not equal. But all races are long. And some are longer. And some are shorter. I may not be able to run your course, and you may find mine impossible, but I can finish my race, and you can finish your race. Everyone can finish. I was, I was, I was uh, preparing this morning, I thought about somebody with a short race. I thought about Tempa Newbold. As I read about what she's undergoing, this little baby, she has a race marked out for her. And I thought, I'm going to mention that. I'm going to pray for her before I go on. So I want to pray for Tempa right now. Father, there is a race marked out for baby Tempa Newbolt. And if what the doctors say is true, it's not very long. It's short. There is a race marked out for her, a leg in this race for her parents and grandparents, likely a very painful race. We pray that by the grace of God, by your grace, by what this passage means, that you will allow each one to run the race that is set before them. Amen. Now, we can finish the race that is set before us, and we experience the same uh, excitement the Apostle Paul did when he neared the finish line. This is 2 Timothy 4, 7, where he says, I fought the good fight, 
I've finished the faith race. I've kept the faith. And depending upon God, there is no doubt that you can finish the race that is set before you, the race that is set before us, and do it with satisfaction, whoever you are. Key is perseverance to run that race. Well, perseverance doesn't have to do with your giftedness. It has to do with your heart. I remember uh, some years ago, the Pepsi Challenge was taking place in Omaha, Nebraska, and there were uh, a thousand participants, and among them was a guy by the name of Bill Broadhurst, who um, several years before had had an aneurysm, he'd lost the strength in one of his legs, and so uh, he was really impaired. Well, Bill Broadhurst began the race. Everybody took off, and here he was putting one leg in front of the other in kind of a kerplop, kerplop pace as he ran that race. The first contestant of this 10,000 meters ran it in about 30 minutes. He came in two hours and 29 minutes, two hours later than first place. And as he crossed the finish line, he saw a man that he'd seen in the newspapers whose name was Bill Rogers, the famous marathon runner, who then approached him and took off his medal from the Boston Marathon and hung it around his neck. That Bill Broadhurst's finish was just as great and just as phenomenal in Rogers' mind than as winning the Boston Marathon. The biblical perseverance that refuses to be deflected, overcomes obstacles and delays, is not stopped by discouragement. And this kind of thing is available to us all. So it's quite possible within the reach of every one of us to manifest a positive, conquering perseverance, putting, if you feel it, one heavy foot in front of the other and just keeping moving along. The race that we're talking about in Hebrews is not for sprinters who flame out after 100 meters or 200 meters or 400 meters. It is for people like us, faithful plotters, people like you and me, fast or slow, strong or weak, we must all persevere. Now, if you're following the flow of the passage, we have stripped ourselves of our besetting sins, our sinful, clinging, adhesive things that would hold us back, every uh, thing, and we've begun to run with perseverance the race that is marked out before us. And then given the focus that guarantees finishing well, and the focus is Jesus. We see it in verse 2, right at the beginning. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, when the writer of Hebrews wrote this, he was very intentional because he used the name Jesus alone. He didn't say looking unto Christ, the Messiah. He didn't even say looking unto Jesus Christ, 
He says Jesus alone because he wants you to focus on the incarnate Son of God as he lived in a man here on earth, that Jesus was a runner without parallel. Every obstacle was thrown in his way, but he never stumbled. Never stumbled, but finished going away. And as such, Jesus became the founder and perfecter of our faith by the way he lived. He founded it. He pioneered it by his perseverance. There was never a millisecond when he did not trust the Father, resting everything on him. So great was his trust that he lived out every word that came from the mouth of God, the scriptures say, Matthew 4.4. 4. And he continues to be the founder and perfecter of our faith by what he does as he bestows the gift of faith on us and that perfects us, his children. Now, since we need faith to run the race, we must be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And what the text literally says is this. We must deliberately lift our eyes from other distracting things and focus with utter concentration on him and continue doing so. That we must not look off of Jesus, the author has it, for even an instance. When I was uh, a junior high boy, the most uh, famous race mile ever run took place when I was in junior high school. Uh, most of you will have never heard of it, but after, the, after church you can Google it and I'll give you where to look at it. It was August 7, 1954 during the British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada that you have what was called the Miracle Mile, touted as that. There was Roger Bannister, uh, a, a doctor, a physician, uh, from Cambridge University, a student of the body, a student of health, and John Landy, an Australian, and they were the only two sub-four-minute milers in the world. Bannister was the first man to run a sub-four-minute mile, and you can imagine how this was touted. Life magazine had uh, uh, pictures, full pictures of both of them, all their training, assessments of their hearts. I mean, it was absolutely, it was amazing. It was like a world championship fight. And uh, as, the, as, as the race began, uh, Bannister had his strategy that, that he would hang back and let Landy run and he would stay within him. But Landy was running so fast that by the third lap, he had, to, he had to speed it up, and he finally got almost even with Landy at the final bell for the final lap in Vancouver. And uh, the crowd roared, and he couldn't hear Landy's football behind him, and he looked back like this, and Landy passed him, and uh, one going away. Um, Loss of concentration, loss of focus. Those who look away from Christ will not finish well. 
that was exactly what was happening to the people in the stormy waters of the early church in Rome. They began to take their eyes off Christ, fix them on the hardships that were around, to look elsewhere for answers, and the author calls them to reestablish their focus upon Jesus. So, focus on Jesus. But there's a little more here in the words of the text, because along with focusing on Jesus, we must focus on his focus. And you see it in the last part of verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, for the joy that was set before him. Jesus focused on the coming joy of his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement to God's right hand, plus the joy on the other side of the cross of redeeming people to himself strengthened him to run. So he endured the terrible agony of the cross for the joy that was set before him, that, that, that agony that he experienced with a concentration and a sensitivity of a completely pure humanity experiencing the pain as no other human could as he bore the sins of the world. He did it for that. And then he scorned the shame of the cross because he thought nothing of the shame. He dismissed it because of all this he knew that bounding, dancing, endless joy that awaited him. Now, again, I want you to hear this. Jesus' joy was centered on the cross and on the other side of the cross and redeeming his people because that was ultimate joy. There's a best-selling book by Dane Ortland called Meek and Lowly about Jesus. And here's what Ortland says that fits this. It was the joyous anticipation of seeing his people made invincibly clean that sent Jesus through his arrest, death, burial, and resurrection. And then he adds, when we today partake of the atoning work coming to Christ, we are laying hold of Christ's own deepest longing and joy. And then he says, Jesus is comforted when you draw from the riches of his atoning work because his own body is being healed. You see, the body of Christ, us, are being healed. Jesus' deepest joy, who for the joy set before him endured the cross the joy of taking a people to be our own. So here's the wonder. Jesus' joy is our joy. His joy is the joy set before us. You say, how can this be? The answer is that we are one with him. Christ is in us. We are in him. Where Christ is, we are. Ephesians tells us he's seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There were heirs and fellows, heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order to may be glorified with him. 
that his Jesus, boundless dancing, endless joy, will be ours. And to doubt this is to doubt God's word. And then, finally, in his famous challenge to run with endurance the race that is set before us, the writer of Hebrews restates the command to focus on Jesus in the fitting terms of an athlete in verse 3. Consider him, that's Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. That phrase, grow weary and faint-hearted, is, is an athletic term. It means to just to, uh, have an exhausted collapse. Therefore, the way for the Christian to avoid spiritual collapse is to consider Christ, the opposition he faced, the likes of sinners like Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate, and consider how he faced them with confidence and meekness and strength. No one can miss the main message of this passage. We're to be totally absorbed with Jesus. He's to fill our skies. He's to be our sunrise. He's to be our high noon and our sunset. Now, whether we have been or are athletes or not, we have a race to run in a hostile world. Whether we're 9, 19, 90, and we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, as so beautifully read this morning. The patriarchs, such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The prophets, like Moses and Elijah and Daniel. The inner circle of the apostles, Peter, James, and John. The martyrs, such as Stephen, Thomas, uh, uh, and uh, the martyrs of today, Cranmer and Eliot, great preachers like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon, exemplary missionaries such as William Carey, Hudson Taylor, a Amy Carmichael, Jim Eliot, family members and friends. Well, they don't see us, but we see them. And their kind faces beckon us to finish well. Their memories whisper, you can do it. Don't lose heart. The end will come before you know it. Hang in there and be tough. So the call to perseverance, brothers and sisters, is a gracious call that comes to us all. We must throw off every besetting sin, those sins uh, which so easily entangle us, those clinging sins, they have to be cast away, our besetting sins by the grace of God as they're revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. And then we have to run our own race, the one marked out for us, the race God has for us that he has equipped us for, has laid out the course, and we can finish going away. And we must focus on Jesus. No distracted glances. Jesus must cover the sky. He must be our center. We must focus on his joy because his joy is our joy. And we're to consider him and how he lived his life. So 
We're to run as Jesus did, completely divested. We're to run with him. We're to run toward him. We're to fix our eyes on him. We're to focus on Jesus. And he is to be our constant consideration. He has a race for us to run. And we can do it. We lean upon him. May God bless you with the races set before you. Long, short, uh, uphill, downhill, whatever it is, uh, Jesus will give you the grace to persevere. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we think of... Uh, pastoral prayer this morning and we think about where we live in our culture today and we don't know where our paths will lead but we know that the race the path that you give is ordained by you and we pray God that we would uh, cast off our sin look to Jesus and run with perseverance the race that is set before us amen